Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. Great to have you with us. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area north of Baltimore. If you're nearby, come join us. For all the details, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. Well, permission to kiss yourself. We're in a new chapter. Revelation chapter 8. Oh, we're really moving. If we count our Monday Bible studies, this will be our, uh, tomorrow will be our 92nd teaching in Revelation thus far. I'd like to call your attention again this morning to Revelation chapter 8. I'm excited because I get to talk about something that is very foundational to Christian uh, living, living as a Christian, and that is prayer. We get to talk about prayer. Now, that's exciting to me because most people hear a, a message on prayer and go, oh, why did I come today? But this is exciting stuff. Uh, as always, we're going to march through our text today, make sure we understand it, but we have a very specific trajectory uh, today, and that is prayer. We're going to zero in on it. Now, let me calm your fears. Let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to spend the next 45 minutes berating you that you need to pray every day, an hour a day, and if you don't come to the prayer meetings, are you even saved? That's not what this is at all. If... (laughs) If anyone's a Christian, you know you need to pray. I don't need to tell you that and guilt you into that. Pastors make a poor Holy Spirit, so I'm not going to try to berate you. Uh, my goal here today is when, when I'm done teaching is that you'll want to pray. Uh, and, and prayer, a prayer as it is defined in Scripture, is not an obligation. Prayer in Scripture is a privilege. Loved ones, we are sinners, and God is not. He is holy. And when Jesus came and he died for the sin of the world, and he reconciled us with the Father. Remember, Mary sees him in the garden tomb. It's almost the first thing he says, I go to my God and your God and my dad and your dad. (laughs) And the, the, the connection between us and the Father has been restored. The the boundary, the temple veil has been ripped. We now have absolute peace and access to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ and all who believe in him have access to the Father. And so as God's children, it's not that we have to pray, we get to pray. And today's teaching is by no means a comprehensive study on prayer. In fact, I'm a little tempted to turn this into a series, which I may just. Then we're never getting out of Revelation, but... There's so much on the topic of prayer that we're just not going to get to today, so have some grace with me um, if I don't hit something you think I must. Um, But today's text is a wonderful opportunity to pause and look at what God does with our prayers and why we should be praying today. So let's jump in. Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... So we have, (laughs) this is monumental because we've been waiting three chapters for this thing to get opened. (laughs) And finally, the seventh seal is opened. 
Verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus, who's the Lamb, keeps opening a seal and chaos breaks out and organized chaos and and all sorts of things happen and there's all sorts of noise and judgment and prayer and four horses of the apocalypse and God finally opens the seventh seal and you go oh boy brace for impact and there's nothing there's silence and then isn't that interesting for about a half hour (laughs) like this book is so precise it's been surgical. Now we're about a half hour, which is fun. And here's what I think we are being clued to. Habakkuk 2.20, Zephaniah 1.7. Heaven now has grown silent in anticipation for what God is going to do and say next. The silence in heaven is an expectation for what God is going to say or do next. And isn't it interesting? God waits about a half an hour. (laughs) Isn't it true? His timing is always different than our timing. (laughs) It's always perfect timing, but doesn't line up with our time chart. So there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Verse 2, then I, remember who the I is in this passage. It's the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, uh, and he is observing, he is recording these events for who? Who's the book written to? The church, seven churches, us, the universal, the whole church. Then I, uh, John, saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. Now these seven angels seem to be high-ranking angels and each of them is given a trumpet. In the Bible, it's important. Trumpets are used for all kinds of reasons, uh, sometimes for warfare. Think of Gideon, remember? For the Lord and for Gideon. Uh, sometimes for worship. Remember, uh, we'll get it. we're going to pause. It's going to take two. Sometimes to call an assembly, sometimes to make an announcement. In the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, it associates trumpets with the day of the Lord. You know, when the Lord returns, we're going to hear a trumpet. The other day I was in my bed and I heard a train whistle blow and I woke up going, it's time. (laughs) So you understand me. In the New Testament, trumpets announce the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 52, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. So there's lots of uses of trumpets in the scripture. Uh, however, if we look at the context of what these trumpets do, these trumpets seem to be representing a call to war, judgments more than anything else. After each trumpet is blown, judgment is coming to the unbeliever. Verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. In the opening of Luke's gospel, Zechariah, remember, was offering incense at the time of the hour, uh, at the time of the hour of incense, which was what? A time of prayer. So 
in the gospel, prayers and incense were connected. And here they ascend to the Father. Now you may be thinking like I did, why? (laughs) How does this work? Well, maybe this will will help here. In, In the Old Testament, where were sacrifices made? On top of mountains. And why? Well, because it's closer to heaven. It's closer to God. Abraham brings Isaac up a mountain to sacrifice him. Couldn't he have killed him somewhere else? Of course. But sacrifices were made up a mountain. Gideon, Judges 6.26, sacrifices a bull on a mountain. Very place where the statue of Baal was, which is great. Uh, Elijah faces the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Uh, David sacrifices, remember when, when the plague came through, he sacrificed on the threshing floor, which was on top of a mountain. The temple was built on a mountain where the altar of sacrifices was put and sacrifices were made. Here, here's the point. As the sacrifice was burned up on a, a high place, the smoke of the offering would ascend up into the sky, symbolizing it ascending to God. Well, the same here is true with incense in the temple and tabernacle. They burned incense in the temple and tabernacle. And as the priest and the people prayed, the incense would represent the prayers of the people as it ascended up to God. Does this make sense? Well, well, here in heaven, God also gives us a visual representation. The prayers of the saints are mingled with the incense, demonstrating to us to show them that their prayers are ascending to the Father. God is showing us here today that the prayers of his people don't go nowhere. You ever pray and go, God, are you even listening to me? Well, God shows us, oh yes. The prayers of God's people rise to the very throne, to the very lamb beside the throne, to the very face of our Father. Now, let's read what God does with these prayers, because this is awesome. (laughs) Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth, on the earth. And there were peals of thunders and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Just to throw one more thing in there, and an earthquake. Imagine for a moment your John. Sometimes you ever put yourself in the Bible, not to make yourself the hero, but just try to picture it. You're in heaven and there's dead silence. Now, when God says there's silence, it's not like there's some background noise. It's got to be silent, silent. Then an angel stands before God with a censure. Imagine a large golden bowl with a stem. Uh, Think of like a large chalice, you know, something a Viking would drink out of. And but bigger. And, and, and so the smoke of the censure, of, uh, with the incense in the censure, ascends to God. And maybe you hear the sound of crackling of the fire. You ever throw like um, leaves on a fire? You could hear that, you know. And remember, it's, de- it's dead quiet. You could hear a pin drop. Then the fire grabs some of the coals from the altar and he puts them in the chalice looking censure. And think of that sound when you put ice cubes in a glass, clink, 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 you know, you hear the fire drop in one by one. And then the angel, it says he holds it in his hand 
and then hurls it to heaven, which causes thunder. And John must have been terrified. And lightning. And then there was an earthquake. And so the silence is broken in a very abrupt and alarming manner. And as we'll read next week, after the fire of the altar falls on the earth, and the fire from the altar was used for sacrifice. That's what the altar fire does. So what do we know? Something's going to die. Something's going to be burned up. And next, the angels will start blowing their trumpets one by one with new judgments coming. Then, uh, le- then leading us to John eating the scroll. After all of that, he eats the scroll. Uh, and then the heart of the book, God's victory over evil. And that's today's passage. Can you believe we did five verses? This is a miracle. Uh, <laughs> prayer. Today's passage was really about God using the angels as an answer to the prayers of the church. Remember, we already have the prayers of the church, don't we, in chapter, in chapter 5, 6, 6. Remember, they pray, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And God says, okay, let's answer it. <laughs> so let's talk about prayer in, in two parts here. Why we should pray and how we should pray. And this is fun. This is fun. First, why? Every Christian filled with the Holy Spirit who has trust, who is trusting in Christ for salvation, according to the Bible in Romans 8, 29, is being made into the image of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Did you know the Holy Spirit lives inside the believer and then changes you? Which means like you ever find sometimes like things you used to do are no longer enjoyable? Like, well, why don't I like this show anymore? Because <laughs> the Spirit goes, time to grow out of it. And he slowly works on you in this way. That's a good thing. And the first thing I want you to know about prayer as we are being made into the image of Jesus Christ is that Jesus, while on earth, Jesus was a man of prayer. The gospel, according to Mark, uh, was the first gospel written. Did you know that? It was the first New Testament book written, the gospel of Mark. And within the first chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Mark is almost eager to, to, to reveal that Jesus is a man of prayer, that he was up before the Son seeking the will of the Father. And listen, if Jesus needed to seek the will of God, and his seeking looked like, God bless us, food to our body, in Jesus' name, amen. If his, if his prayer looked like waking up before the Son then us sinful men and women are in a whole lot of trouble if we barely pray at all. If Jesus needed to seek the Father, boy, so do we. Now, prayers. The prayers of God's people, what we see so clearly from today's passage is that our prayers do not go nowhere. God's people, his children, have the very ear of the King of kings and Lord of lords. If we want to play off today's imagery, we have the very nose of God. (laughs) And through faith, we call him dad and father. And there is so much power in our prayers. And remember, nowhere in the Bible do we see the disciples ask Jesus how to walk on water. Nowhere in the Bible do we see Jesus teach them how to 
make fruit loops or multiply bread or, or the fish. Boy, God, I would bring God a plate of sashimi and go, can you help me redo this? You know? But we do see them ask Jesus how to pray. Whatever they heard, whatever they saw when Jesus prayed, they knew there was immense power in it. Now, one of the reasons I love the gospel according to Mark is because it emphasizes Jesus's power over the kingdom of darkness. And in Mark's gospel, in chapter nine, the disciples tried to cast out a demon and it says they couldn't. (laughs) And then, you know, they called Jesus over and he... You know, he, he casts the demon out. And then they get alone with God, Jesus, and they go, why couldn't we do that? And he replies, Mark 9, 28, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. According to Jesus, there is going to be evil in this world. And like Paul fleshes out, that evil often takes the form of corrupt government and evil people and cultural wickedness. And sometimes, as Jesus put That cannot be overcome through might, mind, or muscle, but only through prayer. The Apostle Paul again tells us that the evil we face in this world is not chiefly human, but is led, fed, and directed directly by the demonic. And that some demonic can only be cast out through prayer. And listen, you guys, if you've been here long enough, you know I am not denominationally charismatic, like I'm not going to fall out in tongues. That's just probably not going to happen. And I'm not denominationally Pentecostal, though I love Pentecost. But biblically, if you need a breakthrough on something, if you're fighting with something really evil, then use the weapons that God has given us and pray. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We need to pray. And as Jesus personally laid out in Mark 1, don't make your prayers 10 seconds long and expect God to move. Don't be a lazy prayer warrior. (laughs) Set time aside. Prioritize time with your Father. And prayer with the Father in Christ through the Spirit has great power in its working out. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much, we're told. Paul also tells us in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10, that prayer helps us to live the way that we should. Isn't that fancy? (laughs) According to Paul, when we pray, the Spirit teaches us and fills us with spiritual wisdom. Do you know what that means? You want to be full of joy? You want to be patient? Do you struggle with patience? If you didn't, you lied. (laughs) If you want understanding the Scriptures... If you want understanding, these, according to Paul, are gifts that God will give us if we ask. (laughs) Ask him. And when you pray, (laughs) one of the things I was thinking about, when we pray to God, we don't get a busy signal. (laughs) Like in today's text, the, the silence is him listening. 
So ask him. Remember the prayers ascended while there was quiet. You almost wonder if the, if the saints beneath the altar are watching the incense hit God for a half an hour going, nothing? Nothing? How much they got to burn? <laughs> nothing? Yet the silence was God truly listening. So ask him. And one of the questions I get sometimes, if God, and maybe you've asked yourself this question, I know I have, if God already knows everything and is totally sovereign, why do we ask him anything? God's going to do what he wants to do anyways. Why even bother? And it's a great question. And the biblical answer is, is because God is often waiting for you to ask him so that when he does the miracle, if he so chooses to, that's when he gets the glory. (laughs) If God sovereignly protected you from any and all evil, from birth to death, you would have no idea what he saved you from, would you? You would have no idea of the depths of his goodness in light of the darkness that we deserve. So when we pray for things, we are actively seeking to to give God future glory. God, I don't want to be sick anymore. And then there's silence. And if he answers it, oh, the joy that comes. And over and over and over again. And so this is why we should pray. And now I want to close with how we should pray. Now, this is going to take an unexpected turn, and I'm delighted to do it. I love the story of Peter in the Bible. Don't you? Don't you love? He just has that foot in his mouth constantly. Like, I'm not glad he failed so often, but boy, I'm glad it's recorded for me. And his failures and successes are both put on display for us. And Peter is such an important figure in the New Testament because what? He was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was part of the three. It was him, James, and John who spent the most time with the Lord. They were the closest to Jesus. Well, Peter wrote two New Testament books for us, uh, the book of First and Second Peter. Now, in Peter's first work, he lays out a framework for effective prayer. Now remember, Peter, the disciples, asked Jesus, how do we pray? Teach us. And now Peter is going to teach us how to have effective prayers. Isn't that important? And Peter talks about prayer in his first work, 1 Peter, three times. And I want to look at them. So if you want to follow along with me, uh, turn to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to start in chapter 3 here. This is so fun. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your uh, adorning be external the the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Isn't that awesome? But 
For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an, uh, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are, the, uh, are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What? <laughs> the first thing Peter, who was closest to the Lord, tells us about prayer is that a good spouse, a loving spouse, a compassionate spouse, that's someone who has unhindered prayer. Now question, if we were to go into the mall with a clipboard and ask Christians, how do you get real power in prayer? Don't you think you'd hear things like, you need to fast? You need to say the right words. You, you need to get into a good frame of mind, void of distraction. You need to really feel it, is the one I, I hear a lot. Yet Peter tells us that power in prayer comes from being a good spouse. Loved ones, P Peter is telling us before we approach the Father in prayer, we first need to be godly husbands and wives. Prayer starts with how you treat your family. That's where your prayer starts. And if you are contentious or selfish or overbearing or exasperating or difficult or disconnect, you have a sin issue that's hurting your prayer life. How you treat people and lead your families and treat your employers or employees, this clogs or unclogs, hinders or unhinders your prayer life. Boy, isn't that a different way to think about prayer? Now, let's see what the second thing Peter says. 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. <laughs> Do not repay evil for evil or uh, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, you were called to bless people, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and sees, see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lip from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are opened to their prayers." but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The second thing Peter tells us about prayer is that those who pursue peace and watch their mouths, God's ears are open and he's ready to answer their prayers. Power in prayer is had by how we use our tongues with people, how we speak, how we seek peace, how we choose to be a blessing. You know, if you can be reconciled with somebody, then be reconciled. Forgive them and seek peace, for God's ears are open to peacemakers. On the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus tell us about peacemakers? For they shall be called sons of God. Peter tells us how we speak and how we forgive others greatly affects our prayer life. You want power in prayer? Watch your mouth. <laughs> the third thing Peter says, 1 Peter 4, verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
The third thing and final thing Peter tells us about prayer is that there is a way to think and live that will help your prayers. Typically, when we think about prayer, we think that prayers help us with our Christian walk, and that's true. But Peter tells us three times that our walk also helps with our prayers. And this is what James asserts in James 5.16, the prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So how should we pray? We start by being godly men and women. Our prayers begin by how we treat our difficult people, how we treat and love our loved ones and lead our families and our kids and community. Now, at this point, there were a million roads I could take here, uh, and there, this is why I could probably teach this for the next, I don't know, year. But I wanted to take this in a direction that, that was very personal to me and my family and something I'm very passionate about, food. <laughs> Many of the people I talk to, not everyone, but a lot, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you all are hearing the same thing I am. Many of the people I talk to, and especially young families, are so incredibly busy. Everyone, I, it's like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. How's work? Oh, it's crazy. Short-staffed. How are your finances doing? I got to work extra. It's crazy. If this is you, if you're, if you're the kind of person that's always on the move, maybe just because that's your character or out of necessity, you just always have something going on. Uh, there's always a kid to take to some sport, something. There's always a place that needs you and you're just busy. Something I want to leave at your door, so to speak is if prayer begins with how you treat your spouse and family, how does that work if you have no time for your spouse or family? You know, I know I make a lot of jokes about food because obviously I love it, but uh, seriously, one of the hills I think Christians should die on is the family meal, is the dinner table. Um, and again, I could have taken this a lot of places, but this is something I am very passionate about. If anyone's any spent any time with me, I'm probably cooking for you. Um, there are so many instances in the Bible where God employs, uses, and encourages family meals. The sound of the kingdom of God of Jesus's ministry in the gospel was the sound of feasting and drinking, a lively dinner table. When Jesus wanted to reach sinners, how often do we see him at the table with them? What he did was find one of or maybe the most effective ways of restoring the lost, and that was to share a meal. And he ate food and he drank wine with them. They called him a drunk because he had so much fun all the time. <laughs> and when Jesus gave us the sacraments, the command to communion, he told them, do this in remembrance of me. As he handed them a loaf of bread and a glass of wine. When did he do that? At the dinner table. When the disciples grew the early church, Acts chapter 2, you know what it said? They went house to house breaking bread, giving to all in need. They had meals, they ate. That was the missional strategy of the early church. Come over for supper. When we get into heaven, what's God's big plan for us? He prepared a table for us, the marriage supper of the Lamb, God's dinner table. In Leviticus 23, God commands seven feasts for his people to celebrate. 
Why? So that you will be a holy people. Deuteronomy 14.26 fleshes this out a bit more and encourages us to eat meat and drink wine and strong drink, it says, which was beer, with each other and rejoice with our households before God as an act of worship. Now, listen, if you struggle with substance, the pastor told me, glug, 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 glug. No. No. If, you, if, if, if alcohol is a sin to you, then it's a sin. Refrain from it, of course. But the spirit behind this is celebrate. Celebrate God with people. Make it a point to celebrate people because of God. And families need to set, they need to die on this hill. I'm not saying you can't have a TV dinner every once in a while, but what are we doing here? We need to set time aside. You know, a household of two, grab a bite. If you're single, find friends and grab a bite. In Psalm 23, what does the good shepherd do? He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. In Luke 15, Luke 15 is that, 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 that triplication of parable about God restoring us, first the sheep, then the coin, then the son, and all three, they end in a celebration. And the very last on the parable of the prodigal son, a picture of the father bringing us home into the kingdom of heaven to be with him for the rest of eternity. What does God do? He kills the fatted calf. Why? So we can make merry with our friends. When the, the picture of God inviting us into the kingdom of heaven, he serves us steaks. My kind of father. <laughs> That's right. Reverse seer all day long. <sighs> Don't get me started. I ran out of bacon this morning. It was a... I know, me and Job. So I ate a pound of ground beef instead. I am ready for a fight. Let me tell you, this is... From all of my reading and all of my studying, I know this. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, remember this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 21, are warring over our dinner tables. Family meal, meals with Christians, meals with our families is a hill to die on. I believe if we prioritize family time, family dinner, and sit together and laugh and tell stories and jokes and turn off the TV and for God's sakes, put away the phones <laughs> and just enjoy what God has provided in the food and the drink and the people, I truly believe God would be most pleased with us. Listen to Deuteronomy 12, 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. The family meal is celebration of God's provision in worship. When we eat a meal and celebrate with our family, it's an act of worship. Martin Luther would give similar and say similar advice to a friend struggling with depression. He said the best way to fight spiritual warfare and resist the devil was not to focus so heavily on not sinning, but to have fun. 
want to read it to you. It's one of my favorite quotes. Try, this is Luther. Try as hard as you can to despise these thoughts sent by Satan. In this sort of temptation and battle, contempt is the easiest road to victory. Laugh your enemy to scorn and ask to whom you are talking. By all means, flee solitude. Don't be alone. For he lies in wait most for those alone. The devil is conquered and despised. And uh, the the devil is conquered by despising and mocking him. Not by resisting and arguing. Therefore, Jerome, that's the guy he's writing this letter to, joke and play games with your wife and others. In which way you will drive out your diabolic thoughts and take courage. Be strong and cheerful and cast out those monstrous, monstrous, monstrous thoughts. Whenever the devil harasses you thus, seek the company of friends or drink more or joke and talk nonsense or do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more, sport more, and recreate ourselves, A, and even sin a little to, dis- to spite the devil. And if you read Luther, he knows you shouldn't sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you're strong in faith and you have a healthy walk with the Lord, to in some instances get close to the line of sin. Of course, don't sin, but don't don't also, and, and I'm talking to myself here, don't be so, don't live so afraid of sin that you forget to live. I know people that get so tightly wound in pharisaicalism and the law and not, you know me, you know I am real big on holiness and purity. But I know so many people that get so wound up in that that they have no life in them at all. You know, I find it no coincidence that Jesus' first recorded miracle was turning water into wine. Because wine, all through the scripture, was a picture of celebration. It was a picture of the removal of the curse. The, the one who removes the curse is here, is what Jesus is saying. What does Jesus also tell us? Oh, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need to stop focusing so much on on trying to be a child of God and just be a child of God and rejoice in the finished work of the cross. You know, do you ever find yourself you've sinned and you think God can't love me anymore? Or you look back and go, I didn't pray or read yesterday. God's not going to listen to me. You know what that is? And I'm talking to myself here. That's idolatry. That's you thinking you're the reason it's working. We need to live and enjoy God. And if we sin, he's bigger than our sin. And we do everything we can to fight our sin. But we can't be so worried about it that we forget to live. The kingdom of God in Jesus' life was advanced through joy. The early church advanced the kingdom of God through joy. And if we're going to reach our families, we're going to do the same thing. Enjoy intentional table fellowship. So biblically, the dinner table, family meals is a place of love and conversation and witnessing and joy and celebration, which means according to Peter's three prayer points, that our tables are conduits for powerful prayers. 
Our prayers gain more life when we share meals with each other. The kingdom of darkness is pushed back by our fellowship. When God's people, when Christian families gather around the table, Deuteronomy, God is watching. And when friends pick up checks for each other and give wise counsel and laugh and have fun, when husbands love their wives and wives serve their husbands and kids are loved and listened to and grandma brings lasagna and grandpa's burping after every bite of food, God is watching. When our tables and feasting and joy is done for the glory of God, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Our Father who art in heaven is watching and is so pleased with us. And our prayers will be given great power in their working. I really believe having godly, silly, funny conversation, merrymaking is the sound of the kingdom of God. Because according to the gospel, this was often the sound around Jesus. According to Acts, that was the sound of the early church. When Pentecost happened, do you remember what the Pharisees said? Ah, they're drunk again. They're having too much fun again. No, they just knew Jesus. And they had fun. And this is how we conclude. In today's text in Revelation 8, we we watch what our prayers will do in the Great Tribulation. But also through today's text and the many scriptures I laid out, and I just threw up Bible verses on you today, that that in Christ there is also great power in our prayers now. And one huge way to have power in our prayers now in, in this life before we are perfected in glory wearing the spotless white robes is to be a godly people to be a faithful people. But how did Peter say godly, faithful people live? By being loving people. Sometimes godliness looks like laughter, looks like joy, looks like kindness, looks like peace with our families. Peter lays out that the supernatural often comes from the seemingly very ordinary. So if I can encourage you, pray. Through Christ, let your prayers ascend to the throne of grace, right to the throne of the Father and the Lamb. And how we pray and approach God in prayer is by being a faithful, godly people. To be a people who love people because our Lord Jesus Christ loves people. To be a people who love lavishly because God loved us while we were yet sinners. If that's not lavish love, I don't know what is. To be a people who love much because we have been forgiven much. And then, if possible, enjoy and celebrate with our people to the glory of God. You want powerful prayers? Celebrate God with your family. And do it loudly with a little bit of ruckus, is what I want to encourage you. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We we thank you for the things that you've laid out in Scripture. Sometimes you got to nudge us to say, have a little fun. <laughs> God, you are a good God. You are a God that placed man in Eden and gave us fruit trees and let us name the animals. You could have named them. You wanted to see what we would call them. You're a loving father. At times you're hysterical. 
God, help us to be an extension of that. We want to grow in Christ-likeness, of course, but not just in the heavy things. Mature us in the light things of Christ, the joy of Christ, the laughter of Christ. God, grow us. Grow us in your likeness in a complete way. And then, God, help us to celebrate you well. Let us celebrate you well as the people who lived with you celebrated you well. And God, let us not be so afraid to live that we stop living. Let let us enjoy. And if we cross a line, your spirit is living and active and you will tell us. You will pull us back. But God, help us to live. And so we pray for anyone in here that has been bondaged by the law, by so, I can't sin, I can't sin, I can't sin, or <laughs> brutal self-critic. <laughs> God, we ask that you would pull them back and restore the joy of their salvation. God, we pray for those in here that may not know you, that they may come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, which is not the bad news, it is the good news. It is joy uncontainable. Let them swim in the ocean of your grace, which is, which is goodness. So God, send us out with laughter and joy. And for those in here that are sorrowful, that are going through heavy and hard things, God, we ask that you would help us to sorrow well and then eventually lead us to those green grasses of joy. Let us not be stuck in sorrow. We do pray. So be with your people. And all who agreed said, amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary, Baltimore. Please keep in touch. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. Finally, if you're unable to come see us in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast.